0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present David Pepper, former chair of Ohio's Democratic Party who assesses the Republican Party threat to democracy and what Americans must do to resist a dissent into an authoritarian system where free elections and free speech could be eliminated. David Korn, Mother Jones Magazine's Washington bureau chief, who talks about his new book titled American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. And Tyler Mark Nelson, a climate activist and a second-year student at Yale Divinity School who discusses the growing faith-based climate justice movement and why he's chosen to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: After a wave of destructive floods and civil unrest in Sudan, aid workers warn of a generational catastrophe as millions of children are unable to attend school. The Guardian reports that extreme poverty, a lack of qualified teachers and strikes by teaching staff, the COVID-19 pandemic, and low vaccination rates are among the many factors that have contributed to the crisis. According to UNICEF, 600 schools were closed in August and September, with the highest rate of closures in the war-torn Darfur region. School buildings generally have no furniture, running water, or toilets. Children who do attend school often face massive overcrowding with 140 pupils per class. Currently, 7 million Sudanese children are not enrolled in any education program. Aid workers report that 70% of 10-year-olds in Sudan are unable to read or write. In order to make enough money to avoid starvation, many school-aged children sell vegetables in local markets. UNICEF spokesman Owen Watkins says it's time for the international community to invest in Sudan's children, which will determine the future economic and social health of this impoverished nation. Famed Guatemalan investigative journalist José Rubén Zamora founder of the El Periodico newspaper, was arrested and detained in late July after security forces stormed his home and offices. Zamora and his finance manager, Flora Silva, both sit in a military prison while government prosecutors built a case on charges of money laundering, blackmail, and corruption. Throughout his career, Zamora and his newspaper faced 195 lawsuits and a commercial boycott. In 2008, he survived an assassination plot. The day after the arrests, the independent newspaper published a banner headline that read No Nos Callaran, or They Will Not Silence Us. Soon afterwards, the government froze the newspaper's bank accounts. El Periodico has conducted multiple investigations of President Alejandro Giamate and key officials, including the attorney general and head of the special prosecutor's office. Repression against the independent press in Guatemala accelerated after the government disbanded the United Nations-backed International Commission Against Impunity in 2019, which had brought hundreds of corruption cases and strengthened a growing civil society movement. In the latter days of the Carter administration, the Paperwork Reduction Act created a new agency in the White House. The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA, The agency was designed to be the final stopping place for the approval of all new government regulations. In the early days of the Reagan White House, which was hostile to all government regulation, the administration adopted an executive order that required OIRA to use cost-benefit analysis. This review protocol systematically and deliberately understated benefits and overstated expenses. The order explicitly prohibited implementing regulations unless the benefits could be shown to outweigh the costs. Even in the Democratic administration of Barack Obama, the office, under the leadership of law professor and Obama friend Cass Sunstein, was hostile to new regulations, favoring market reforms instead. The American Prospect reports that on his first day in office, President Biden signed a memorandum directing ORIRA to use the regulatory review process to promote public health and safety, economic growth, social welfare, racial justice, environmental stewardship, human dignity, equity, and the interests of future generations. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon, For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: As the 2022 midterm election loomed just one week away, President Joe Biden took to the airwaves in a primetime address on November 2nd to condemn his predecessor Donald Trump and other Republicans for embracing political violence, voter intimidation, and the big lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Biden declared that American democracy itself was at stake in the November 8th election, that will decide which party controls Congress and other state offices such as governor and secretary of state. Various news reports indicate that Republican election deniers will be on the ballot in 48 of 50 states. Some 300 GOP candidates seeking those offices have denied or questioned the outcome of the 2020 election. More than 170 election deniers are running in districts or states where Republicans are expected to win according to the Cook Political Report. Your reporter spoke with David Pepper, former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party and author of the book titled Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. Here he talks about the GOP threat to democracy and what Americans must do to resist a dissent into an authoritarian system where free elections and free speech will be in jeopardy or eliminated.
2: In our country, we we have blinders on. We just think, well, we're America. Democracy is so safe. We we don't really see an attack on democracy here as clearly as we would in another country. And so I kind of walk through these hypotheticals, and and I say, you know, as I did in the whiteboard, what if in another country we saw, you know, a, a, a rigging of elections or gerrymandering, so every election outcome was guaranteed, or we. Or we saw a party in power attack an independent court to try and get a friendly court that would uphold their illegal laws? Or what if we saw another country start to ban history or ban books, change the way people could protest? When we see it somewhere else, the truth is it's very clear to us it's an attack on democracy. And the point in my book, Laboratories of Autocracy and the White Board Today and other things I, I talk about is so much of that same type of attack on democracy is happening in our state houses all around the country. But because it's in our own country, we actually don't see it for what it is. And I think that's a real blind spot that we've got to get through. Because if we don't start, you know, this is the whole point of, again, the book the, the attack on democracy is basically the front line of it is in state houses around this country that are gerrymandered, that are pushing extreme laws, that are attacking voters. And if we don't start seeing that as a true threat to democracy that it is, I think it just continues to succeed. If we see it in another country, you know, Hungary and Viktor Orban or an extreme case like Putin, it's very obvious to us that that's what's happening. But in our own states, like Ohio, where this has been happening now for several years, most people just don't see it that way. The media doesn't cover it that way. And that's a real blind spot for us. And it's a real risk to us if we don't start to wake up to it.
0: David, I wanted to ask you briefly about resistance, because if Republicans take control of one or both houses of Congress— the political landscape of this country will be changed, certainly in the short term, but likely in the long term in terms of the jeopardy democracy will be in. What's your view of how citizens who are pro-democracy, how can they respond to this? It certainly, I don't think the advice really is to wait to the next election. People, no. in, in my view, people really have to get active between these elections and start challenging these extremists at the school board, at the library, wherever they congregate, to try and foist their minority and extremist views on their communities.
2: So the whole theme of my book is, if you didn't see it yet, understand that we are in the same battle for democracy that John Lewis was in, women suffragists were in. We've been blinded again. We just, a lot of people, you know, myself included, we've just assumed it's been intact for a long time, so we think of politics as this sort of every couple of years we have a federal election. No, we're in a battle for democracy itself. Once you realize that, and that is what we're in that's our entire national history That's when you realize that's a long term battle. It never ends, so even if you know it's a midterm sometimes when we have a White House in the midterm, it's a struggle. The minute it's over, even if we don't like the results, and i hope we I hope we do, keep going, keep going. It's not only the next election. So much of the heart of the attack on democracy is actually trying to knock voters off the rolls. It's trying to change the electorate. It's trying to purge voters. So whatever you can do even before the next campaign to start registering voters, if you run a restaurant or if you're on the board of a homeless shelter or something, make sure those organizations are all registering voters. We have to see the lifting of democracy is a full-time, nonstop thing we do to help make a difference.
0: That was David Pepper, an attorney, former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, and author of the book Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. Find more analysis and commentary on the fight to protect democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. When Donald Trump launched his campaign for president in 2015, He consciously used the rhetoric he believed would resonate with a Republican Party base that he needed to win the GOP presidential nomination. As he announced his presidential bid, he declared, When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Throughout his campaigns and presidency, Trump attacked immigrants, Muslims, communities of color, journalists, liberal Hollywood actors, and intellectuals. Trump won overwhelming Republican support by tapping into the racist and xenophobic sentiment that had long been part of the subtext of the Republican Party's message machine. While previous Republican candidates often sent that same message with a quieter dog whistle, Trump used a bullhorn to rally his supporters, stoking hate and fear while often provoking political violence That culminated in the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection to overturn the 2020 election. While some political pundits were shocked by Trump's authoritarian behavior and in-your-face support for right-wing extremism and white supremacist ideology, Mother Jones Magazine's Washington bureau chief, David Korn, wasn't surprised. In his new book, American Psychosis, A Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy, Korn chronicles how the GOP has consciously cultivated and exploited racism, paranoia, and conspiracy theories for at least seven decades, stretching all the way back to the red-baiting days of Dick Nixon and Joe McCarthy. Your reporter spoke with David Korn about his research into the roots of Republican extremism, seen in today's MAGA and QAnon activists, and how civil society can effectively fight this fascist movement hell-bent on destroying America's multiracial democracy.
3: The book is a history of the Republican Party's relationship with far-right fanaticism. And I go over the last 70 years how it has encouraged and exploited uh, right-wing extremism, which could mean racism, bigotry, paranoia, conspiracy theory, tribalism, and all sorts of other types of of divisive ideology. The point of the book is to show... That this has always been part of the Republican Party DNA. Um, it hasn't always been fully acknowledged. It hasn't always been fully recognized by journalists of the time and historians of the period. But yet it has always, always, always been there as part of the modern Republican Party. And you know, I have a little backstory in the book. This traces the Republican Party from Lincoln and the days of being The party being a progressive force against slavery for economic opportunity um, to becoming a party of business and isolationism. And sort of crashing in the 1940s after the Great Depression at the end of World War II uh, with the advent of nuclear and nuclear terror. And the Yanis brought about by the beginning of the Cold War, there was a lot of fear and paranoia for the Republican Party to exploit and capitalize on. And Nixon did this with the Alger Hiss case, which he you know claimed was a sign that the American government and the elites were riddled with an internal enemy, subversive forces that wanted to destroy the United States from within. But he was quickly surpassed by this guy named Joe McCarthy, the junior senator of Wisconsin, claimed he had a list of 206 commies in the State Department. It was a complete lie. But all this resonated with millions of Americans and in some ways got the Republican Party back into the game with this notion that they were fomenting and promoting that the real threat to America was not necessarily, you know, the Soviet Union from a military perspective, although people did believe that, but it was this internal subversion, the radicals within the country. This base notion that the way to win elections is to accuse the other side of being an eternal enemy and whipping up fear became a crucial part of Republican strategies. And you could see it with Working with the John Birch Society in 64. You see, with Nixon on the Southern Strategy, you could see it with Reagan in the late 70s, embracing the new right and the religious right, which were at the time pioneering this thing called direct mail, which they would send out millions of pieces of literature playing on people's paranoia, saying that the liberals, Democrats, the gays were coming to destroy America and christianity that was their point you know i could go on but in every iteration of the republican party there was some embrace of this extremist strain the paranoid style of politics and that embrace often meant encouraging this view of the world as well
0: well david you know with demographic changes it seems like the republican party goal right now is to impose minority rule Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. How do you think U.S. civil society should respond to today's Republican Party semi-fascist threat, as uh, President Joe Biden put it? What are the lessons from history in terms of creating a big tent, broad-based anti-fascist movement to both educate voters and mobilize people to challenge right-wing extremists, when they attempt to take over libraries or school boards or s- state legislatures and the federal government through gerrymandering, voter suppression laws and subversion of election results, which seems high in the list of priorities for Republicans these
3: days. I think that's the $64,000 question. And maybe rather than not calling it anti-fascist movement, maybe you would call it a pro-democracy movement. It sounds a little more inviting and more proactive and more positive. Now, my guess is 30 percent of the public are people who are strongly or close to strongly in the Trump big lie, Obama wasn't born here category, maybe 25 percent of 20. But and I think those people are beyond reach in terms of public discourse. And they're going to act on that, which means if they get elected as secretary of states the uh, various states, they will make sure that the Democrats don't win because they believe the Democrats only win when they cheat. Uh, so it's a real pressing threat. The goal, I think, of the pro-democracy movement here has to be to basically make sure the other 70 to of 80 the, percent of the American public is aware of what's happening and to forge what they used to call a popular front, that no matter what your ideology is, no matter what your agreements are or disagreements are and any other matter, fundamentally we need to preserve the democratic system through which we then can have debates and fights and discussions about what best to do about the economy, housing, healthcare, whatever you you know, foreign policy, whatever you want to hear argue about. And I think right now that portion of the public is not coalesced into that type of robust coalition. And it's unfortunate that that hasn't happened going to the run-up to the midterms because that allows the anti-democratic forces more opportunity to win seats and take over a portion of the U.S. government, maybe one, if not both houses of Congress.
0: That was David Korn, Mother Jones Magazine's Washington Bureau Chief and author of American Psychosis, a Historical Investigation, of how the Republican Party went crazy. Learn more about the GOP's exploitation of right-wing extremism and paranoia by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. If Republicans take control of Congress in the 2022 midterm election, the party and their allies, among right-wing Christian evangelicals, will certainly block any government legislation to address the climate crisis. But in recent years, moderate and progressive people of faith have been speaking out and taking action on climate change in growing numbers. While the national organization Interfaith Power and Light has chapters in 40 states, and has been working on climate change issues for a quarter century, newer formations such as Green Faith have become active in the U.S. and around the world. Green Faith's motto is building a grassroots multi-faith movement for climate justice. One of the group's strategies is engaging in nonviolent direct action. On October 20th, 28 religious leaders and laypeople were arrested at the New York City headquarters of BlackRock, protesting the giant asset manager's investments in fossil fuel projects. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus spoke with Tyler Mark Nelson, a second-year student at Yale Divinity School, who was one of those arrested at BlackRock. Here he explains what motivated him to get involved in the faith-based climate movement and his hopes for its
4: future. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about how uh, religion, culture, and language shape our perceptions and ethics around human and non-human relationships, as well as the possibility for the religious imagination to offer a more just alternative to present social, political, and economic realities. So for listeners who haven't heard of Green Faith yet, they are a a multi-faith environmental organization Their mission is to build a grassroots multi-faith movement for climate and environmental justice. Uh, One of their core beliefs is that faith and spiritual practices can lend us the strength needed to address the existential threats facing all life on earth. They also recognize the role that religious and spiritual activism has held in the lineage of of justice movements. Uh, You can look at Even the the work of Martin Luther King Jr., who often spoke on the interconnection of all life on earth, and he recognized the inseparability of racial, economic, and environmental justice. And then, you know, we could turn to the 1970s in Warren County, North Carolina, where many of these Black church leaders from the civil rights era did nonviolent direct action training to help communities try to fight off this really nasty plan to to dump cancer-causing waste in impoverished and predominantly Black communities. Um, so we could see the, the lineage we step into, uh, but we could also date back to other justice movements, whether that's abolition or suffragette or LGBTQ, today the environmental movement. There seems to be a presence of religious imagination or religious folk who really try to use the language and even a sort of moral authority to cast a new vision against the the systems and structures that hold so many people down.
1: Tyler, Mark Nelson, does Green Faith try to build uh, relationships and intersectionality with other sectors of the climate movement, Uh, you know, maybe like students or labor, or mostly just try to expand its own base?
4: So I think Green Faith is continuing to expand around the globe they are doing a series of really neat initiatives or campaigns based around the holy days of different religions. Part of their different campaigns, including the recent Face for Justice, climate justice campaign, one of the, the three areas that they're really calling for is a commitment to a just transition for impacted workers and climate vulnerable communities. So I do see there being an awareness of the rising labor movement that is occurring now, and the necessity to to have an intersectional lens when when approaching these matters of environmental justice. Uh, but then the, the, the faith or religious climate movement elsewhere, I see getting involved in all sorts of sectors. In the United States, there are uh, different organizations trying to get involved with the sciences. Over in the UK, there's the Christian Climate Action, which is sort of the the religious branch of, or at least the Christian branch of extinction rebellion.
1: You participated in this faith for climate justice action. Is that what it was called? The thing that you did uh, recently where you were in New York and risking arrest? Tell us about that.
4: So this most recent climate action that I participated in was organized by Green Faith. And it was a a multi-faith gathering, a march and a rally to BlackRock's headquarters in Manhattan. BlackRock is is the world's largest asset manager for fossil fuel investments. Uh, In recent years, their CEO, Larry Fink, has made some some bold claims about how the investment strategies ought to take into account climate change, not for reasons of environmental care or ethics, but simply because that is more profitable for their investments. So right now, there's, there's a good amount of pressure being placed on BlackRock to hold their word, to move away from new fossil fuel investments and projects and begin investing more heavily into renewables. There were three calls for BlackRock that we, we submitted in a letter. They are to exclude fossil fuels from active funds to make more investments in clean energy, which is also to make climate-safe funds the default for active funds. And the third call is to adopt a policy for and by Indigenous peoples.
0: That was Tyler Mark Nelson, a second-year student at Yale Divinity School and climate activist. Learn more about the growing faith-based climate justice movement by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org you've been listening to between the lines a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities the nation and the world between the lines is produced and distributed by squeaky wheel productions if you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WUML in Lowell, Massachusetts, WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, KSER in Everett, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.